Hey there, have you heard about the Rosenman Innovator Program? If you're looking to scale up your health tech idea, this program is for you. I'm Carly Grant from the UCSF Rosenman Institute, and I have the pleasure of connecting entrepreneurs like you with people who can help you grow your business faster. The Rosenman Innovators Program provides hands-on mentorship, guidance, and a whole suite of benefits that help you navigate the path to commercialization. So what are you waiting for? Applications are open now. Don't miss your chance to be a part of the Rosenman Innovator Program. Join us today to successfully fundraise, gain visibility, and grow your network. To find out more, go to rosenmaninstitute.org slash programs slash Rosenman innovators. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. We're doing it wrong and we're not seeing change. Workplace diversity has been at the forefront of every diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation for the past few years. But mandatory bias training once a year as the solution just isn't cutting it. So what makes the cut? I'm happy to speak once again with returning guest, Professor Frank Dobin, Chair of Sociology at Harvard University, as he gets to the root of what works and what doesn't. If you want to explore what it really takes to get to diversity in a workplace, then this podcast is for you. His work provides valuable insights into effective diversity initiatives and a commitment to change. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome back, Frank. It's so great to see you here again. Thanks so much for having me again. Yeah, so congratulations on your book, Getting to Diversity, and it's out there. I thought we can just dive in. And as you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity. And, you know, it's, it's always been a, a topic that people need to talk about. And I feel like, you know, for the last few years, there's a lot more uh, intensity in terms of diversity. And some of the, as a result of that, sometimes can be really extreme to the left, extreme to the right. So what are the things that you learn, like what's, you know, is about diversity, uh, what work and what doesn't? Maybe you can start with what doesn't work. Well, uh, the reason Sandra Kalev and I got to studying this um, a few years ago is that we were frustrated when we looked at what organizations were doing, companies, nonprofits, universities. We were frustrated when we looked at what they were doing because we saw them doing things that are pretty well known not to be effective at changing bias in individuals. From, mostly from laboratory studies. So we had a pretty good idea that some things like grievance procedures and diversity training, like grievance procedures for discrimination complaints or harassment complaints, um, diversity training and sexual harassment training, these things are kind of the go-to solutions to the problems of discrimination and harassment in the workplace. But 
we had pr a pretty good idea from these laboratory studies and from some field studies, for example, of individual um, firm-level grievance processes that those things, neither of those things really were going to work to change things. What we didn't have good evidence about is whether those things would have negative effects when it comes to changing what the workforce looks like or whether they would just kind of have negative effects on individuals' attitudes, like their biases, um, or their intentions, like their intentions to improve their behavior, for example. We knew from the studies of those particular practices that they seem to have negative effects on those sort of psychological outcomes, but would that translate into actual negative effects on what the workforce looks like? So would the workforce actually become less diverse? Mm -hmm. And so what what so the first thing we tackle in the book actually is um, how effective are these very common pro-diversity programs? And do they have the negative effects on workforce diversity that they have on individual bias? And the the big big picture argument is or finding from 10,000 feet is that these kinds of training programs as they're usually put into place and uh, these sorts of grievance procedures mostly have negative effects. That is, they mostly lead not only to negative effects in terms of people's biases and their intended behavior, but they mostly lead to negative effects on the actual diversity of the workforce. And I think a lot of employers find that surprising when they first hear about it. But when you, when you start to think about the sociological processes underlying these kinds of interventions, so training programs that are supposed to, to show people that they're actually biased or that their behavior constitutes harassment, and then grievance procedures that are designed to punish people for acting on biases or for engaging in harassment. If you think about the processes, the psychological processes that are supposed to underlie the efficacy of those things, I think it makes sense that they have adverse effects on bias or, and behaviors, but also on what the workforce looks like. That is, they mm -hmm. make the workforce less diverse, and especially the management workforce. And that's because when you put people in a diversity training program that takes the typical format where people are shown that they are biased, the first goal is to convince people that they're biased or that they would be inclined to harass people without, without being aware of it. And then you go the next step of trying to show them that their behaviors, whether it's discrimination in the workplace or harassment, are against the law and showing them what the law says, people just react very negatively to that. People don't like mm -hmm. to be, they don't want to believe that they're biased. They don't want to believe that their behavior might constitute harassment. And um, when they see that the law is behind the impetus for the organization to make them change, they react ve very negatively to that because people don't like to think that 
the law drives them to do what's right. They like to think that that's internal. And so they, the typical trainee and the typical person who's faced with a grievance process just has very negative reactions. So, and these are the, the upsetting thing is that in the United States, these are the most common strategies that firms use to prevent and remedy discrimination and harassment, prevent through training and remedy through grievance processes. So if you look across big and small firms alike, these are just the most common things that are out there. Mm-hmm. How is it different from, say, the sexual harassment training? Is that, how is it different? Because it kind of feel like uh, there is a similar approach. Like you provide this training, this is what the do's and what the don'ts, and why it's illegal. It's not legal. Right. So one interesting thing about sexual harassment training is that um, the the kind of training that's offered to uh, the workforce as a whole, which is very similar to the kinds of diversity training offered to the workforce as a whole. So the the first topic is just to show that people show people that some of their behavior might be harassing. And they might be unaware of it. Just like diversity training shows that shows people that some of their thought processes might be biased and they're unaware of it. And then the second part of it is to show them what the law says they can't do. And essentially to put people on guard, like if you do X, you might be harassing somebody and that might come as news to people. So those kinds of, um, those kinds of, of uh, trainings have clear adverse effect, that is negative effects on diversity of the workforce, um, both uh, diversity training and harassment training for the general population. And that kind of diversity training, when it's targeting managers, also has negative effects because when diversity training is offered explicitly to managers and they're given the same information, they come away with the idea that they are responsible for inequality in the firm. It's manager misbehavior because that is the message. Here are the things you can't do as a manager. Here are the questions you can't ask people when you're interviewing them. can't ask them if they're married. can't ask them about their um, sexual orientation. can't ask them about their background. So managers come away feeling that their um, legitimacy and their fairness has been challenged. But interestingly, um, sexual harassment training for managers shows a different pattern. And when we interview managers about how they respond to sexual harassment training, we hear something pretty different than we inter- when we interview managers about how, how they respond to this kind of legalistic diversity training that puts them on the defensive. When we interview them about harassment training, they'll say, um, I knew that there was harassment going on in my, in my work group. I knew that there was harassment going on in my team, but I didn't know what to do about it. And... So harassment training for managers typically is kind of like bystander intervention training for harassment on campuses. It, it gives examples of 
behavior that people might find as harassing. So it doesn't say you are a harasser. It says, here are some examples of training. And then it doesn't say you can't do this. It says, here's what you might do to try to intervene. <laughs> and when we talk to managers about what that experience is like, they say, I never knew that I could intervene. I never knew how to intervene. What, you know, when this happened before, I just covered my eyes and waited for it to go away. And, you know, that is just the worst thing you can do as a manager. If you suspect there's harassment on your team, the best thing you can do is to get out in front of the problem. And that's what training for managers, harassment training for managers, trains them to do. It shows them how they could get out in front of the problem by, mm -hmm. um, for example, if they suspect harassment, going immediately to the person who they think has perhaps been harassed and asking them about it to, to see if, mm -hmm. if there's some um, truth in their suspicions or sometimes mm -hmm. it's a third-party report. Mm -hmm. And then immediately talking in a careful, judicious way to the person who they think has been engaging in harassment, if there's some evidence that they have, and trying to say, hey, look, um, I think, you know, what you did, I'm sure you didn't mean anything by it, but um, this is something we don't do around here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I want you to, you know, the world is changing and you need to understand that um, mm -hmm. people experience that kind of behavior as harassment now. And I want to help you, help you get beyond that and help you think about ways you can behave in the workplace that won't be experienced in that way by other people. So, I mean, for example, and of course, in some cases, um, the, the message has to be a lot stronger than that. But, you know, starting with, here's one strategy. And if, the, if what's happened is egregious, well, you might have to take a stronger line. But just giving people a toolkit of strategies for dealing with harassment early on in the process, first thing they, first thing, the time they've heard about it. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's also the, the, the sexual harassment uh, training is more like providing them with a tool on how to react while the uh, diversity training is more like here what you need to do to be diverse? Yeah, and it's also diversity training people people experience, managers experience as somebody's blaming me mm -hmm. for not doing those things in the past. They're telling me I failed. And interestingly, that kind of training doesn't just lead to no positive change in workforce diversity. After several years and, and lasting for 10 to 20 years, it produces negative effects on the diversity of the manager managerial workforce, which is like the hardest workforce to really change. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. What kind of things that can work? And we can touch on that. That would be great. 
Sure. So um, what kinds of programs are more effective mm-hmm. than these? Right. Yeah. So the whole, the core of the book is really about, not about these things that we've tried and don't work, um, but about the promise of some things that are pretty straightforward to implement that have huge positive effects on workforce diversity. And I would say that um, the, the things that are most effective kind of come under two umbrellas. One is democratizing every aspect of the career system. And then the other is getting managers engaged themselves in solving the problem instead of blaming them for being biased or even for letting harassment go on. Um, So under the first umbrella, if you think about how people's careers unfold in organizations, whether they're corporations, nonprofits, government, universities, um, there are a bunch of routines and practices that help people to develop so that on the one hand, help people move into the firm and then help people learn how to succeed. So mentoring is an example. Give people the skills they need to move to the next level. So skill and management training is an example. And then help them manage their lives outside of work. So work-life programs are an example. Um, so if you take those as as four core parts of the routines and practices that guide people through their careers, so part of the overall career system. What we find is that in too many firms, these systems are left to chance. They're left to informal processes. Um, And when they're left to informal processes, often women and people of color are excluded from the key um, recruitment activities, from that, the mentoring supports that people get, that some people get from the skill and management training systems, and ironically, even from the work-life supports that some people get. So the question is, how, do, how can firms democratize all of these things? And I think our statistical analyses, which look at the effects of democratizing each one of these realms of the career system, we see a very clear pattern where if you you move toward democratizing recruitment, mentoring, skill management training, work-life supports, you see very big increases in women and people of color in management. And I think the only way to explain that is by opening these systems up, you kind of equalize the playing field between white men who often have pretty good access to these things and the other groups who often don't have very good access. So, Mike, next question. Like when you said democrat, democrat, I don't ever know how to pronounce this thing, democratizing uh, the system, uh, like what are, you know, what are that? What does that mean? Like, so that, because I think some, you know, women oftentimes don't have the access and sometimes they don't know there's such thing. And how do you make that available? And because somebody has to inform us, like you don't know what you don't know. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. People don't know that often that these things are part of the career system unless somebody tells them. Um, so, well, let's start with recruitment because that's how people get into the firm. Most firms hire people through networks. So most firms hire most of their employees through employee referrals. They may advertise and formally recruit, but employee ref referrals from existing employees are key. But a lot of, in a lot of firms, that's all informal. It's, it just happens word of mouth. So the CEO has a nephew who would like to have a job in accounting, and boom, that happens. The CFO and even, you know, kind of low-level manager has a cousin. That person usually gets hired pretty quickly. Um, so the problem with that system is most of the people in those jobs are white and men. Most of the people in management jobs are white and men. And so the people who tend to get hired through these word-of-mouth informal referrals are also white and pretty often men. Now, that's actually pretty easy to fix. So the way that firms have fixed it is by um, creating formal referral systems where any, they invite everybody in the firm to refer people for every single job opening. So it's, a, it's pretty simple. Most firms already um, post job openings. So this system just means that they send around a, a message to everybody in the firm saying, we have this job that needs to be filled. And so we invite formal referrals. And often they give a, some kind of, um, usually sort of token finder's fee, $250 mm -hmm. after the person has stayed around for six months is common. And then they really need to say, we really want a referral from you, from everybody in the firm. And the reason that can help to diversify the ranks is that if you really send the message to the frontline worker you hired last week that you want their referral, you're more likely to get somebody who is a person of color referred because mm -hmm. their networks tend to be populated with more people of color because they themselves are more likely to be people of color. Um, women are more likely to refer women. So um, just doing that has a huge positive effect on um, the diversity of managers. First, the diversity of new recruits, but then after just a few years, the diversity of managers. One of the reasons is that people who come through referrals are more likely to stay with the firm. Mm -hmm. They know what they're getting. And also, they have, they have a buddy there already. They have somebody right. who they can go to if they have a problem and who's going to look out for them if yeah. you know, they seem to get a bad assignment. So that's, one, so that's a way of like democratizing what we think of the, as the old boy network. The CEO can, rec can refer his nephew and mm -hmm. really opening it up to everybody. But how do you address, say, the... Uh the people, like the leadership level, because then sometimes they're an opening, say VP of whatever, XYZ, and then they, the people who tend to know people at that level tend to be in the same leadership level position. And currently they're still mostly the white male, for example. Then how do you change that? Well, Oftentimes the 
you know, the entry level person don't have that network of the high level position. That's exactly right. And what we see in our interviews is that when when people when we open up this kind of referral system to everybody, um, typically the people who are referred by frontline workers or of color are going to be other frontline workers. But this is a system that at least makes the frontline jobs more diverse. And of course, those jobs eventually promote into lower level management and middle management. So it's not necessarily the the quickest way to diversify top management, but it is a kind of um, growth from within model. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, you know, it's partly that you're going to get more diverse people being referred if you do this, um, more people from different backgrounds, and it's partly that um, they have a buddy there. They have somebody mm-hmm. within the firm who within the organization who can help them find their way up. And all, and also, you know, people, if they don't like their employer, they don't refer their friends. So you get people who like the employer and who want to stay themselves yeah. doing the referrals. I think it's also this process, it's, uh, it's a long journey. It's not something that you can fix in one year. And it's like changing the culture, changing, which, you, you know, Things like that takes takes a long time, but you have to keep nurturing. You cannot just do it one time and then it's off itself. Absolutely, though I, I will say that we see effects of these um, formal referral systems, which are usually for firms call them referral incentive systems because there is some some usually financial incentive. I mean, sometimes it's a gift card, sometimes it's a dinner out, sometimes it's a day off, some sort of incentive. We see these effects kick in within a year or two for Mm. management jobs, all management jobs. So, you know, doing this can help. It also helps to keep the referrer around because the referrer suddenly may have a network of people in the company that he or she has referred and they're like, oh, my, my friends are here, and so they may they themselves may be more committed. Um, yeah, I also found that uh, companies usually put a referral fee for their employee when the hiring environment is really hot. Yeah, when the hiring environment is not that hot, usually they don't want to spend the money, or they'll um, they'll only use a referral fee for the very top jobs, the jobs they consider difficult to fill. So, you know, for example, a hospital might do have one for an uh, anesthetist, but not for an LPN. And that doesn't work. I mean, it only really works to, to put these referrals in, in good times and bad, as you point out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also for all jobs up and down the ladder. Yeah. I wonder, like, you know, we are at University of California, so we are a public university state employee. I'm not so sure we are allowed to refer people because then it feels like there's that conflict of interest. So, I mean, referrals happen in different ways, right? But I bet in your university, as in mine, new jobs are posted, and if, if you're a staff member and you want, you can, you can look at the jobs that are posted 
and you can tell your friends to apply for them. Mm-hmm. And your friends can list you as a reference. So now that might not be a direct referral, but it is basically, that's what a referral right. is. A person tells you that there's a, there's a job and they, they yeah. say, I'll vouch for you. Yeah, and I definitely don't get $250. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny, my my son is uh, doing a summer job for a restaurant this summer. And restaurant business is having a hard time uh, filling up position here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Good time to be in the restaurant industry. Yeah, yeah. So he works one day a week. Uh, He's a high schooler in he referred his friend and then he got the uh, referral fee. Oh, he got the bonus. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I thought that, wow, that was nice. And so that, that was the first experience that he was telling me about, you know, you can refer friend. But what I also learned from his experience, he ran into a friend who was shadowing him because he's been working the summer. Mm. And so I, I know the friend and I was like, oh, how does the friend know about this job? Like, how come he's... She shadows you. It's like, oh, she's a family friend with the owner oh. of the restaurant. So there you go. You mean that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how people so, get jobs. Right, right, mm-hmm. exactly. So I you do mention a, a bit on your book about work life help for everyone. Mm-hmm. And how's the impact of that? And is that uh the impact that on diversity? you see it much faster compared to the whole referral process. Well. Because that's something that you can do right away and change. Make sure that everybody who is there are happy and stay in the job rather than leaving the job. Absolutely. So, I mean, I will say that the the recruitment interventions we look at, because we also look at targeted recruitment at historically black colleges and Hispanic serving institutions, huge positive effect. It happens very quickly. Um, That is huge positive effect on the diversity of management positions. Um, So the, the recruitment interventions have effects pretty quickly on what management looks like. But of course, work life supports, as you point out, there, changing how they work affects people who are already on the job by re- retaining them. And, you know, especially in this time, if, if an employer loses somebody, they might, they might be looking at six months before they can fill the job again, not only in the restaurant industry, but in many industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you don't, so retention is very important. And to be honest, retention is always important because turnover is so expensive because training costs are high, recruitment costs right. are high. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the huge national retailers like Walmart, for example, figured out that they can save a ton of money by increasing retention, even even if they can get it up. You know, they have like retailers often have like an eighty or hundred percent turnover rate. Mm-hmm. If they can reduce that by ten percent, they save a lot of money. But it's interesting you mentioned about retention. It costs a lot to train people, but I, I don't, you know, I'm just saying based on anecdotal, you hear a lot of company sometimes don't think about it that much and they're too late. And then, you know, one time I have this uh, HR person was saying like, oh, why don't you ask them to come up with a, you know, an offer letter and then you counter them. Um, That's too late. That's too late. 
That's it's not just that. Like, why bother? <laughs> yeah. No, you got to prevent them from wanting to go somewhere else. Right. And, you know, if you think about the things that people leave for, um, work-life challenges are very, very high on the list, especially for parents and, peop- and people with and employees who have aging parents who they have to care right. for. So, I mean, that's often like the number one reason people leave their jobs in a number of surveys. So, so what could firms do about that? Well, you know, I talked about how recruitment is often informal, and if you formalize it um, and open it to everybody, you can kind of democratize who get, gets recruited. Mm-hmm. Work-life issues are kind of the same. So when we interview a lot of firms, both in quantitative surveys and in qualitative long-form interviews, and often, you know, I'll, I'll say, so do you have any work-life programs? Do you have any work-life benefits? And the person will list six things. And I'll say, oh, so where's that? Could I see the, the manual? I'd love to see, what, like, exactly what it says. Oh, it's not written down. So, oh, so what does that mean? I mean, if somebody really needs this, we'll do it. We'll, we'll totally offer somebody complete uh, time and place flexibility for working if they need it, if they come and ask me for it. And we will absolutely give people as much time off after they have a child or if one of their parents gets sick without pay and, you know, a few months with pay, absolutely, whatever they need. And, yeah, we even have have a child care center nearby that we help to subsidize. So, you know, if somebody has... And I'll just say, well, how do people know about it? Well, we just... We give it to people when we really want to keep them and we're afraid of losing them. And just, you know, just like your um, example of, well, bring me the offer letter and then we'll do something about retention, it's too late. It's too late if the person has, has to come and ask you. And who's going to ask you? Right. If, you're the, if you are the right-hand man of the CEO, you're, the CEO, first of all, is going to know that you just had a baby. And he's <laughs> probably going to say, oh, do you need some time off? Do you, you know, do you need to work different hours? They're probably going to get out ahead of it, especially if they want to keep you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we see is like in organizations that haven't formalized this and made it a right, haven't formalized flex time, work at home options, haven't formalized leaves and pay during leaves for family and medical issues, a new baby, a healthcare issue of a spouse, a failing parent. Those that haven't formalized it really haven't democratized it. You've got to put it in writing and you've mm-hmm. got to actually train people, train supervisors in how to make the, the re- how to make the requests come, come true. If somebody says, I had a baby, I need more time off or, mm-hmm. you know, my, my kid has a disability. I need to come in at 10 every morning for two months because they have this, this special treatment first thing in the morning. But what yeah. we see is that com- companies that put these, put, that formalize flex time, leaves, and childcare options, and childcare options as simple as just having a referral system so that people can find uh, daycare in the area. People that formalize these, firms that formalize these see very dramatic increases in 
white, um, black, uh, Latinx, and Asian American women, but also in black, Latinx, and Asian American men. And mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that people find most surprising, that these are not benefits that just help yeah. women. They're benefits that help minority men. And in our statistical right. models, each of these groups separately sees big increases after mm -hmm. these three kinds of changes in policy. Do you think most companies think about this as, oh, gosh, this is going to cost me? Like they see the cost right in front of their face first and not thinking about the long-term cost of not having it. You know, um, companies do think that it's going to be, these things are going to be costly, but companies that have actually expanded, for example, uh, flexibility programs have seen improved performance without any increased costs. Because if you think about flexibility, well, the Gap is an example. The Gap had a, a flexibility program where, and a, a bunch of retailers and firms in the hospitality industry have been ex, um, exploring different options and experimenting with some different options. Um, so, so the Gap made it possible for people to choose their own hours and to um, avoid certain shifts and to say when they would like to work. So if they had family responsibilities, they could avoid the kind of, you know, last minute, you're on shift now, you've got to show up in an hour. And uh, they actually found that it was no more costly and that performance increased significantly in their stores. And I think that's partly because turnover was reduced because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you're, if you have family responsibilities and you're in a job where there are last minute shift notifications and you can't at all say, I can't work on Friday afternoon between two and five, any other time is fine. You just can't say that. You're looking for another job if you, <laughs> if your kid plays soccer on Friday afternoon. And if you're in a frontline job, you're just gonna, you're gonna take a job at Arby's if, you can't make it work yeah. the gap, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so um, employers who have experimented with these things, like with these kinds of flexibility, leave and childcare options, they're, they're not seeing that costs go up and they are seeing that retention and performance are improved. So I think that's why we're seeing so many employers just trying out new things. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is great. Uh, I mean, I know we are short on time. I feel like I could talk a lot about this. There's so many aspects that we didn't cover uh, that you mentioned on your book. And I recommend the read, especially if you are entrepreneur who are interested in bringing diversity to the workforce and then maintain it and, you know, keep it growing, which is, uh, I think, it's good for everybody. Uh, take, pick up the book and read it. I think it's a great read. And thank you, Frank, for joining me today. Thank you so much, for Christine, for having me on again. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.